and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit more about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. We believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book. And I can't tell you how much it means to hear from you about how you're shifting your mind. So thanks again for the support. Additionally, I run an accelerator program which involves one-on-one coaching from myself. It's designed for executives who are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. Some of the people in the accelerator actually found me via this podcast. And our next accelerator launches in July and it's filling up now. If you are interested in learning more, feel free to email me. My email is brian at strongskills.co. That's brian at strongskills.co. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have already done so. And let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest, and she is an absolute legend. So Muffet McGraw, who was previously the head coach of Notre Dame women's basketball, was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in September 2017. She became just the 32nd woman ever to do so and the 13th female coach. And you will find early in this conversation that bringing 
women out into the spotlight and helping women progress in sports and even beyond sports is a massive mission that Muffet has taken on. But as a coach, she's a two-time national championship. The first came in 2001 when they defeated Purdue. And the second one came 17 years later in 2018. Coach McGraw was the sixth different Division I coach to win multiple NCAA titles, joining legends like Gino Ariema, Pat Summit, Linda Sharp, Tara Vanderveer, and Kim Mulkey. And look, here's the reality. When you look at Coach McGraw's tenure and you look at the work that she's put in over her illustrious coaching career, there are all kinds of incredible statistics. She's one of five coaches, men or women's, in NCAA Division I history with over 930 wins, nine Final Fours, and multiple NCAA championships. Three times in her career, she was the consensus national coach of the year. Seven times, she was the conference coach of the year. She's won 11 conference tournament championships, and she's made 373 appearances in the Associated Press Top 25 poll. And as I said, I could keep going on and on, but we got to get to our conversation at some point, but I'll just hammer home this last point. She is the all-time wins leader among single sport coaches in the history of Notre Dame athletics. And think about that. Notre Dame is an athletic and an academic powerhouse, and she has more wins than anybody at that school. But regardless of what you think about all of that winning, this conversation is about so much more. It's about leadership. It's about culture. It's about tradition. And it's about progressing our society to make it a better place to live for all of us. And make no mistake, Coach McGraw is a competitor. She loves to win. She hates to lose. And she's going to share some of the anguish that she had over her career when dealing with that inner competitor and how sometimes it could lead in directions that were not all too healthy or helpful. But Coach McGraw is honest. She's truthful, and she's somebody who cares deeply about doing things with integrity. So with that in mind, I'm so excited to present to you Coach Muffet McGraw. Coach, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I wanted to start by getting a sense of your childhood. One of eight kids growing up in Philadelphia, give us a sense of what life was like for you as a kid. Well, back when I was growing up, there was not a lot of organized sports for girls. We, we were actually lucky that we started a team in seventh grade. And who would believe that the priests and the Catholic League Diocese of Philadelphia were actually ahead of the curve. They were way before Title IX. So it was always me and nine guys down at the playground. You know, I, I just hung out with all the guys in the neighborhood. I never liked to play with dolls or do anything the girls were supposed to do. And so I always felt like I was a little bit different. Uh, I love sports, uh, any kind. And I was just so excited when we finally started a team and I get to use that competitiveness that I was born with. And it really, really came out on the court. You mentioned competitiveness, and as I was preparing for this conversation, it seems like that word you use maybe more than any other word as you talk about the culture and what you value. How do you think about competitiveness? How do you define it? Like, Because everybody sort of thinks about competing differently. So what does it mean to you? you know, for me, it's about bringing your best game every single day and working every minute 
never taking plays off and always wanting to win. And it's all about the team. For me, it was never about like, I want to be the best player. I want to be the MVP. I want the team to win. I don't care what my stats look like as long as we win. And that's the kind of player that I want because, you know, I don't think you can teach that. I don't think you can teach people the how to compete and how competitive that they can be. I think it's, it's just sort of ingrained in you. And so I try to get those players, you know, everybody wants to recruit the right player, but for me, it was more about those intangible things like competing. You said you were born with it. And then you talk about not being able to teach it. Were you a black sheep in your family? Were you the most competitive person or were you also surrounded by competitors? We mentioned one of, one of eight. Um, where do you think that competitive drive came from? Was it innate or is it something that was cultivated by you? Well, it came from my mom, for sure. She's really competitive, never had a chance to play sports. Uh, I think if you asked any one of my brothers and sisters, they would say I was the most competitive, but I would, I would beg to differ. I think that all the girls, for sure, my, my two sisters that I'm closest with, Patty and Peg, they, they were competitive too, but I, I, I think I might have edged them out on the competition scale. It's interesting. And one of the things that I'm going to do today is hopefully learn from you because I have a five-year-old boy and a four-year-old, four-year-old girl, and they're just starting to play soccer. And so you see them and you see how they interact. And my son is actually like a very gentle, amazingly kind, sweet, sweet boy. My four-year-old daughter is fierce. She's (laughs) strong. She's independent. She's competitive. And as a four-year-old that makes parenting harder for her parents and as a five-year-old he's easier but my wife and I always joke when she's 24 she's going to be fantastic but at four she makes things challenging but what's interesting about my son is when he's competing in sports he brings out another side of him he he changes he he has a fierceness to him that we were a little nervous that he wouldn't have because he's so gentle and you've been around you know, 18 to 23 year olds for a while now. And as a parent as well, I want, I want you to teach me, I want you to share like what to do, what not to do. Cause I don't know what the heck I'm doing and I'm trying to figure it out. But especially when it comes to my daughter, because the one thing I'm concerned about is that we will squelch some of that drive and that independence and that strength that she has that we know will serve her, but that makes it hard for us. So as you witness other parents and you witness working with competitive women, what advice would you give to a father and, and a mother as it relates to parenting a daughter who is competitive and ambitious and strong and fierce yes, and all, well, all of these great words? And I love it. I'd love to hear that. And that is the most important thing to me is the problems we have start so young and it's all about stereotyping. It's all about you were born pink or you were born blue. And when you're going to your birthday party to get a gift, you're going to go down the girl aisle or the boy aisle. And I just, I hate that I rail against that. And I think that's the thing that as parents, you're gonna have to constantly fight the stereotypes. What other parents are looking at your daughter and saying like, gosh, she's so aggressive. You know, oh, that's, thank you. I really appreciate that. We're really trying to teach her to be aggressive. Girls aren't challenged to take risks and to be the aggressor. They're the ones that are supposed to be sweet and kind and get along and be a good teammate and win the sportsmanship award. They don't want the kid that hates to lose and that is ready to, you know, maybe throw the water bottle after the game if they lose the game or or cry on the way home. And and I think those are the traits that make leaders. And I think when you look at, there's a, a 
survey of CEOs. And I think 75% of them were the captain of a sport. They all played a sport, but were the captain because they were the ones that understand all that, that you need. Because when girls go out into the world, it is still a man's world. We have to continue to fight all the time. But it actually affects boys too. You mentioned your son, he's sweet, he's kind, he's gentle. Like that's not what most boys are really praised to be. So I'm glad he has another gear when he gets onto the field. But you know, you have to fight against that stereotype too. It's okay for boys to be sweet and gentle and kind. And so I think it works both ways, but we are just really, it, it's hard. We're kind of handicapping the girls and the boys, you know, for a little bit um, just by the way we treat them early on. I heard this recently and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. The analogy was when you get a pet, a dog or a cat or whatever it might be, you don't go to the store and then think about their gender when you're going to buy them a toy. You just buy them a toy that you think they'll enjoy to play with. And yet you're right. When we think about what we get our, our kids, we do. We think about the gender. Um, at least I do. I'm guilty of it for sure. And so does that analogy, how does that land with you? I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective. I just heard it recently, so I'm still digesting it. But yeah. how do you think about that? That's really interesting. And I think it's so true. And I wish, we, I wish we could do that for our own kids because when you get the girl, the Legos and the building blocks and the erector set and the science stuff, you know, that's why there aren't enough girls in STEM because we're not, we're not really helping them get that way. There's a chemistry experiment. Oh, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's go to science camp. You know, those are things that mostly you look at boys as doing. So it's interesting if we could just look at them both and, and it's great that you have a boy and a girl. Now you get to see it live and you get to try to raise them the same. And it's gonna be hard because there's gonna be times when you wanna just coddle the girls and say, oh, you know, it's gonna be okay, hon. And the boys are going like, no, no, you gotta go fight your own battles. So trying to, trying to be the same for both will be your challenge. It's a challenge and they're 14 months apart, so they are so different. You talk about some of the stuff that's innate. I'm sorry. Like we did not change drastically in those 14 months in our parenting. My daughter came running out and she was <laughs> ready to go and she has a big personality. And so for her, we still need her to be kind, but we need her also to be fierce and, and we still need him to be kind, but we want him to also still have some fierceness to him. And it's been amazing to try to nurture their nature and to realize that they have different natures and proclivities, but we have an obligation as parents to try to look at them and treat them differently while holding them both accountable to what we need as a family and what we expect in our standards, which reminds me of coaching. And it sounds very coach speak, but that is how I think about parenting is in a sense, it's similar to, to coaching and, and how, how, how coaches go about creating their culture and their ecosystem for you. What allowed you to run with this competitive spirit to compete and to embrace sports? Um, was it the family? Was it the environment? Was it, what allowed you to continue to embrace your competitive spirit? You know, I don't think I had a choice. I really feel like once I got on the, no matter what it was, whether it was a game, you know, playing with board games or who's going to mow the lawn the fastest, who's going to get the dishes done the quickest. I mean, it was everything. So I, I think that there was, I didn't have a choice in that, but my parents did and they supported me. They were always at every event and never, I don't remember ever having a conversation with them about, you know, you could be a little nicer. I confess I didn't win a lot of sportsmanship awards when I was growing up, uh, but they, they, really, they really never tried to tame it down. And I was really happy about that. 
Do you have any memories of your dad? I, I This is selfish. All right, we're going to have this conversation. This is about me right now. But do you have any memories of anything that he said to you that really stuck, that made you feel like you had the freedom to step into this part of yourself and embrace it more? No, I, I don't. I, I don't think that he ever really said anything. I mean, he he allowed me to to do all those things. And certainly I had the permission to do those. And he was there supporting. Probably if he hadn't been coming to the games, I would have thought, hmm, like he must not like what I'm doing. And he enjoyed the fact that I was pretty good. And so, you know, he he really loved being able to cheer for me and getting to see me play quite a bit and having some success. So I don't, I don't remember any of those conversations. I remember a referee one time uh, kind of gently throwing the ball at me and saying, when you knock somebody down, you help her up. And I was thinking, that's not the way I was taught. <laughs> Knocked down at the playground. You didn't help them up. You went the other way. <laughs> yeah, and then how do we blend that piece? How do we blend that piece of, because to me, the, the competitors that I respect the most are the ones that compete like hell between the lines, but then have some grace um, and some sportsmanship after it's over and are able, like, I love hockey in this regard. Like hockey is as physical as a sport. It's crazy. They still allow fighting, but at the end of the series, they take their helmets off. They look each other in the eye and they shake their hands. And to me, that's like pure sports. How do we think about, especially when we're thinking about our youth, teaching sportsmanship while still saying there is winning and losing, and that is part of life, and that's part of the experience. How would you reshape how we think about sports, especially with our youth? Well, I think, and, and it's going through the line afterwards, you know, the handshake line, and talking, in our case, to the media afterwards, and how you present that, and that is where the grace comes in. That's the perfect word for it, because you have to be a gracious loser, and a gracious winner, too. Um, but I think you teach it at that age. So it's kind of like there, you have to say, there's a difference. What happens on the field, okay, clocks run out, the game is over, and now it's time for this kind of attitude and to watch. And I remember I filmed one of my players. She was so competitive. And I filmed her one time because there was a dead ball and she helped her opponent up. And I sent her the little clip and I said, wow, you're making such progress. I'm, I'm so happy to see that uh, because it is important. And, and after the game is over, and I think the girls today, they do a much better job at that. They, cause they meet so many places through all this AAU and they, you know, they know each other. But I think the thing you have to battle against, especially with girls is that cattiness, that pettiness, um, putting somebody down and not respecting their talent. And I think that is what men do so much better than women. And I think if we could teach women how to respect each other a little bit more, I think we'd be in better shape. We're going to jump around in this conversation, but I want to stay on competitiveness for a minute. So you've retired from basketball. Where are you getting your competitive fix from um, now that it's not game day and we're going to talk about game day because I think your experience with game day is an interesting one where else do you find yourself competing and what does that look like for you away from basketball well I don't I don't feel like I need it anymore I I'm often just shocked when I ask somebody like why are you running a marathon They're like I just you know I just want to compete and I think wow <laughs> not me I'm, I'm happy I'm, I'm beyond that Although I have to say, I do like to be the first one on the block to get my flowers out. And I want to be the first one on the block to get the Christmas decorations up and, uh, you know, little things like that. But really, I, I've, I've had my share. I've, I've had my 15 minutes of competitiveness. I'm, I'm ready to move on. I know you like to play golf. Do you compete on the golf course? 
Not really. I mean, we, you know, we, I play with my husband, he's really good. And, and we, we do go back and forth a little bit. Um, but not, it's not anything like basketball. It's interesting because in the last decade, since I started doing this work, I worked with a ton of golfers. And so I took up golf so that I could feel what it's like to be over a three foot putt and feel what it's like to be on the driving range. And it's, and then go onto the first tee and hit a drive, not in the middle of the fairway. And it's one of the few sports that I, I would play Wednesday night basketball, but it wasn't the same feeling that I would, I would be able to manipulate and feel like I did in golf and I can play in tournaments and all kinds of stuff. But my friends are obsessed with competing. Like there's always something on the line. They want to play in the tournaments and win. And I'm like, I don't really care. Like you all tell me what I won or what I lost <laughs> or whatever. I, I'm good with it all. And so I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested to get your perspective on what does golf do for you when you're playing and how do you think about it? Um, and, and, and how do you use it? And, and how does it, how, why is it something you enjoy? I'm sure there's also suffering in golf. Nobody enjoys golf all the time, yeah. but talk to me about golf. And did you start playing when you were coaching or what's your yeah. experience been like with golf? We started playing, my husband and I started playing when I was at Lehigh because we were invited to a golf outing and I thought, oh my gosh, well, that was the competitive part. Like, I don't want to be off. I don't want to be the worst player out there. So we better practice. And, and I, I enjoy the camaraderie of it. I enjoy the, uh, the scrambles and, and those things, but I definitely, we, we have a tournament every year. It's an all women's event, run Jane run. And I would not be calling you for my scramble team because I want somebody that wants to win and I want somebody that's going to be competitive. I'm like, okay, who's the best putter? I need a long drive. I need a good putter. I need a short game <laughs> trying to put my team together, a little recruiting happening, but, but it's fun when you're around people. I would never play alone. I, I, I don't enjoy it that much. Um, I, I just like it to get out, be outside in great weather and, and enjoy beautiful scenery. Sometimes we have a perception of ourselves that's different than how others see us. So you could call some of my friends and ask them if I'm competitive on the golf course and they might give you a different, a different interpretation. Um, all right. So going back to just upbringing and childhood, one of the things as I was researching your background is a little bit of tragedy as well. Um, losing a brother. Um, how did that shape how you see the world? How did that impact your family? Uh, just talk about that experience a bit. Well, I would say my mom's my hero because she had so much adversity in her life. Losing a son has to be the toughest thing that you could ever imagine as a parent to lose a child is just, it's so tragic. And, and it definitely shaped, I think, the way that we were raised. You know, when you have eight kids, though, nobody's special. Every, you know, you're kind of fighting to be among, and you learn pretty early on life isn't fair. And I think that's a great lesson to learn that kids today really have trouble learning that lesson. So we, you know, we were all treated the same and she was somebody that could handle adversity and keep moving forward. And that was what I got. Like, it's, you don't have time to feel sorry for yourself. Nobody's feeling sorry for you. You have to just accept things and move on and figure out how to deal with this and continue on. And that was the lesson I learned from her. What were some of the other values that she passed down to you and your siblings? Well, I, I think the teamwork was important. You know, everything as a family and as a team you had to do. She was so incredibly unselfish. We didn't have a lot and she made a lot of sacrifices for us. And to see that, to see the discipline and the work ethic that she had every day. I mean, raising eight kids is not easy. And what, what, what she had to do and what she had to give up 
and then eventually after we all got into school, she went back to work. So we were dealing with, you know, a working mom and that taught us a lot of lessons. I think you've learned so much. People think about all the things you're missing and all the things you don't have, but you know, you learn such valuable lessons about how to be independent and how to do things for yourself. We all knew how to do the laundry. We all know how to make dinner and, you know, learning these basic skills, I think is really important and helped us out down the road. Yeah, I think about the word empowerment and how sometimes as parents, the best thing we can do for our kids is to leave them alone. And a lot of times our instinct is to put them in bubble wrap and make sure that they're not going to be hurt because a part of our job is to make sure that they're not going to get hurt. Look both ways before you cross the street, eat this, not that. We do a lot to try to make sure that they're safe and secure. But if we're just always on top of them, they don't get to explore, get bruises, fall, get up, dust themselves off. Um, I was talking about soccer. My son was playing the game the other day and one of the kids was just punching the whole time, like hitting the whole time. And my parents were watching the game and they're like freaking out. And I go, <laughs> it's fine. He's not getting hurt by the five-year-old not knowing what to do on a soccer field. He's going to be okay. And he's going to learn. And, you know, he'll... He'll, he'll figure it out. And now he'll know how to handle when someone's playing dirty. And guess what? That's what happens in sports. That's what happens in life. But I think that empowerment piece for me is what I'm always, how do I have the polarity and embrace the polarity of my jobs to keep them safe and to empower them? And I would imagine for coaching, it's, it's no different because you don't get to actually run the plays for your kids once they're on the floor. They have to figure out a way to make a play and, and you don't. I think the most important thing a parent can do for their children is let them fail. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It is so hard because you do, you want to put them in bubble wrap and protect them from absolutely everything. But there's so many things they learn through failure and we want to fix it. As soon as something goes wrong, we want to talk to the coach. We want to talk to the teacher. We want to call the principal. It's we're calling the other kids' parents, right? We're trying to make, make sure the play date goes well we have to let them learn things for themselves. When I was growing up on the court with nine guys, it was called how to deal with conflict resolution. You had to learn, was it a foul or not? Was, who was, was the ball in or out? Were you safe or out? And you learn all these things and how to battle among yourselves. You didn't need your parents out there helping you every step of the way. And that's what the mistake I think parents make today. They wanna to plow the road, make everything easy. Uh, you see kids transferring, they're leaving AAU teams, they're leaving high schools, they're leaving colleges because the lack of commitment and the inability to look in the mirror and say, maybe it was my fault. And that's what parents are not allowing their kids to do. So they don't think it's ever their fault. And now here we are in the midst of a pandemic and the parents can't fix it. And so we're seeing mental health issues doubling, tripling on college campuses Kids don't know how to deal with adversity because their parents never let them learn that lesson. So look, we could talk about winning national championships and all of your success. And it's amazing. It's incredible. Where I'm most curious to learn from you and most interested is this idea of polarity. And when I hear you, I hear someone who's a bit of a loyalist, a bit of a traditionalist. You stayed at Notre Dame for a long time. You valued your upbringing. Um, Notre Dame, I think of as Catholic. I think of as, I don't wanna say traditional because that's maybe not the right word, but there's tradition at Notre Dame. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's fascinating. And then South Bend, Indiana is a fascinating place because you've got Mayor Pete coming into the spotlight. But I know people from South Bend who are very different from Mayor Pete uh, and you're in the Midwest. So when I hear your story, I've got like 
this polarity because you're on the forefront and you're you're challenging the NCAA and you're challenging our industries to hire women and to progress and to move forward. And then you've got this traditional element as well. Do you find that those polarities summarize sort of how you see the world that you have sort of some paradoxes at play with your identity? You know, I don't. I feel like it's all about your core values and the things that you really value. And for me, honesty was always number one, accountability, integrity, commitment to excellence, and kind of role modeling, you know, the behavior that you want to teach in other people. And so I think that when you see something wrong and you speak out, you're going to get a lot of negative people coming back at you. But if you believe that it's right, it's kind of your duty to step up. And so I do see the world a little more black and white than probably, and it's a lot more gray than I, than I would like it to be. Um, but I, I do think that when I look at issues, especially with women and how we're being treated, um, and I feel like that's a fight that I've been in for a long time and will continue to be in for a long time. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't see the, um, the paradox at all. I, I think Notre Dame is a very traditional place and their values are very traditional. And I wanted a place that had tradition and tradition of excellence, especially in athletics, but I also wanted that academic integrity piece, um, which they are, are very good at. And, and I think it's a place where there, there are a lot of people that are the same. And, and that's probably the only downside to being at a, a Catholic university in the Midwest. You probably don't get the diversity of thought um, that I would like. Talk about Catholicism. Um, and, and I'm curious to get your read on this. I've worked with people that have become Catholics later in life. Um, I've worked with people that have said, I'm a former Catholic. Um, it, it, it's, it's such an, I like the, I like the song in the back. That's her cell phone going off. I like it. Maybe that's the alarm to not talk about religion in the podcast, but, um, you, you were raised Catholic, correct? Yes. And so talk about your relationship with Catholicism and how you think about it today and if it's evolved or if it's changed or if it's the same as 16-year-old Muffet. Talk about your, your relationship with religion and Catholicism. I was raised Catholic and in the Catholic school system uh, from grade school to high school to college and, and now to Notre Dame. So I've always been around it. And I think I, I've always appreciated most of the values that they teach about uh, caring for people. And I always found it interesting how Catholics don't really read the Bible as much as people that are not Catholic. And when I came to Notre Dame, I found that most of my players are not Catholic. I would say that probably the vast majority are not Catholic. So I've gotten to look at the spiritual side of different kinds of religion. And I've always thought religion was the way you live your life. I don't think it's so much about this going to mass on Sunday and saying these words and, and hearing this or that. It's about how you live your life and what's important in life and those values. And that's pretty much what I've always believed. I, I disagree with the Catholic church on how they feel about LGBT. And, and of course they don't have any women in the hierarchy. So there are quite a few things that I disagree with them on. Uh, but I think the basic values of just treating people with respect I think that that is something that's always carried over. Well, it's interesting because our society is moving away from religion by the day. Um, and the numbers on people moving away from religion are going up. And there's actually some interesting research on how that's impacting philanthropy and the desire to give back 
in that for years in this country and specifically in America, we've led the way when it comes to philanthropy. And a lot of the places that have led the way when it comes to philanthropy are religious institutions. And so I'm so curious about how you blend things. So how do you blend the best in our traditions with the most progressive ways to make our society better? And as I hear you talk about the values that you've gleaned and you've taken from Catholicism that you've embedded into your being and your existence, I have a concern that if we move away from some of those, that we will then not have conviction on some of the values that we stand on. And I just think it's an interesting time to be alive as people suss out how religion's going to play a role in their life or not, and to each their own. But there is value, for example, to taking a day off during the week um, on a Sunday or a Saturday or day of rest. And you see how people now are just on their phone 24 hours, seven days a week. Like you can't really do that in a place of worship. And I'm intrigued by it, especially as a parent, because I'm trying to think about what's the messaging that I'm going to provide my kids so that they can choose their own path, ideally. Um, so as you think about, once again, that tradition with progress, how do you see those two blending going forward? Well, I, I think they can blend. I think, like I said, I think it's the way you live your life and the, the values that you uphold. I always felt like Sunday was family day. That just, you know, that was just the way we started our day. We went to mass, went to breakfast, and and that was how the day began. And you you just kind of hung out with your family. And I continued that with my son. Uh, it was always a day where we just did stuff together. And then, of course, basketball came along, and we started playing games on Sunday, and that that started to change everything. But finding that time is so important. You are so right. We're just locked into technology. I'm somebody, because I wasn't raised on it, I, I can put my phone down easily. I mean, when I go away, I, I turn it off. It's, it's easy for me. And I think it's healthy. I think people need to do that. I think the biggest problem we're having with social media is that little heart at the bottom saying, how many likes did I get on that? And I think that that, that is something I really worry about, how social media is changing people, uh, the bullying that can go on online, and just the, the, the things that people value are, are just so superficial and we need to get back to those core values and thinking uh, in different ways about how we can as a society come together and to have religion be something where i think now you see the far right these people that like they don't want to deal with anybody that's not believing what they believe and you know these people don't believe on this side and and i think that is a horrible place to be where we're letting religion kind of define um you know our, our relationships and our friendships I had on a woman named Megan Phelps Roper, who is part of the Westboro Baptist Church, and her family is essentially the Westboro Baptist Church, and they do all of these protests and pickets and, and really nasty, nasty stuff. But the reason Megan left the Westboro Baptist Church was because people engaged her, and they had dialogue with her, and they went toward her and asked her questions. And I, I think where we're at right now we need to continue to go toward each other and have dialogue, even if it's uncomfortable, because that's the only way people really evolve. And um, when we're segregated, it's easy to hate people uh, from far away. Uh, we all seem small from far away. I think the pandemic's at least taught me that. Um, as I hear you talk about um, feminism and this need for women and being willing to put your neck out there and say, hey, we need more women 
in positions of power. I had another amazing woman, Susanna Welford, who has a nonprofit here in Washington, D.C., um, where she's trying to get women into positions of power in politics because we still don't have enough representation, even though it seems like we have a lot because we're seeing people on the news. There's still ridiculously ridiculous amounts of underrepresentation. Feminism for you, when did that come into the forefront as something that you said, hey, I'm going to embrace this and I, it's something that I'm also going to champion? Was there a time where that became something that you wanted to take on more so than before? Well, I think I always believed that I could do anything a boy could do. And I wanted that opportunity. And I remember sitting on the sidelines at St. Joe's waiting for the men to finish practice and thinking, my goodness, we're waiting for them to finish practice. We're buying our own shoes. We're driving ourselves to game. Like it's, it's really not fair. But at that point, you're just so thrilled to be playing the game. You don't really want to fight. And then I got my first coaching job and things weren't exactly equitable, but you think, is this a time for me to speak? I mean, I really like this job. Even when I got to Notre Dame, things were not equitable. But eventually I realized that if I was gonna take it and accept this inequitable treatment, what kind of role model was I for my team? They're looking at me, all these women, looking at me and saying like, you're the woman in charge, you're a leader. What does that look like? Are you gonna take this? And so that was kind of the epiphany for me. You know, I had that moment where like, I gotta fight this. I, I can't let this go on because I have to show them that it's important for us to fight. And as women, we have this thought that we have to wait until we're successful. We have to wait until we deserve it. We have to wait and see, after I win a lot of games, then I'm gonna speak my mind. And that's just not true. We, we have that right as we come into the job, but we're just, we're so hesitant. And I think that that's something that I wish I would have changed. I wish I would have started earlier, but I, I just started looking around, seeing all these men and decided, I'm gonna to try to make a difference. So whenever a woman comes on campus to speak to anyone on campus, I'm gonna see if she'll speak to the team. I'm gonna look around and, and look harder for more women leaders and see what I can do to get my team to see them. But you're absolutely right, it's politics, it's Hollywood and it's sports. Those are the three places that people look up to see what leaders look like. 25% of the house are women. You know, There's a, a definite dearth of women in Hollywood. I mean, you, don't, you just don't see the leading ladies as much as the leading men and, and they're not getting paid the same. And, and same thing in sports, 60 to 40 men as opposed to women coaches. So we have a lot of work to do. I'll admit it. So this is year five of the podcast. And this past year I did an audit and I, I just went back and looked at how many men have I had on and how many women. And I'm getting like sad thinking about it, but it wasn't good enough. I think it was like 75% men, 25% women. And so I actually put something out on Twitter and said, I'm looking to get better. And here are some women that I interviewed on my podcast that I know I have other people that follow me that have podcasts that they should absolutely have on. And then I've made an, an, an absolute intentional effort to have more women on. I haven't done an audit of where we're at this year, but I can tell you, I think like our next four or five guests are women. And it's, I would imagine it's about 50, 50. And I don't say that because it's like checking the box and, you know, doing it because I want brownie points or I want people to tell me, Oh, look at you. You're an ally. <laughs> it goes back to what you talked about earlier. We learn. It's about learning and growing and getting multiple perspectives. And when I did created this podcast, I could have made this just sports. I could have made this just coaches. 
that's not all that interesting to me. So if you're listening to this and you just listen to our podcasts with coaches, okay, that's cool. That's your decision. But for me, we've had on astronauts, we've had on military, we've had on nonprofit leaders, we've had activists, we've had athletes, we've had sports coaches, we've had business people, we've had actors. That to me is how we can all learn. And so while I understand the desire to be a niche and how demographically, when you focus on a niche, you can market to that group and you can, you can earn from that group. I just think there's less wisdom there. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I appreciate what you're doing because what women need more than anything are male advocates. We need men that are that have a position of power that can bring us along and get us a seat at the table. And, and that's, that's kind of the piece we're missing. But when you look out there and you say, you know, who are the up and coming female coaches and who are the, the, the newest, and who's gonna be the next generation? it's so much easier on the men's side because they just, they have more publicity. There's more upsets in the NCAA tournament. You know, the way women's basketball is not, there's not a lot of parity. So those mid-major coaches don't get the same respect. Um, and you keep falling back on those guys in our game that are, you know, more vocal. And so, you know, women need to do a better job. We need to network better. We need to do more to kind of show that we're, we're here and we're willing to do some of those things. Well, it's also interesting that you bring that up because as I started to really focus on this, I was also amazed at how many men are really quick to raise their hand and say, yeah, I'll come on your podcast. Like I'd love to share. Whereas like, honestly, there are a lot of women that are hesitant and they're sort of saying, Oh, you know, maybe I'll come on or I'm not sure. Uh, Is there also anything there that you've noticed that women are less desirous of, of sharing? Well, I think the problem that we have as women is that when there's even with a job opening, it's the same thing. The job opens and we immediately think of the things that we can't do. We look at the list of qualifications and say, well, I don't have that. I don't, I'm not really qualified. I don't think I'll do it. Or then we check in with our group, our support group and say like, what do you think? I'm thinking about this. And we, we don't have the confidence that we need to just say, yes, I want to do that. We also have the component of we're very loyal and we want to stay where we are. But in terms of things like a podcast, we we kind of like to compartmentalize sometimes, I think. And we want that family time. We want that time away from work. And we think that's just adding to it. Where's, where's the balance, my work-life balance? Men don't have to worry about that. So they can do whatever. And, and they're not worried about who's watching the kids and who's, who's going you know, to take them different places. So I think they're freer to be able to make those decisions where women are looking and saying like, oh, dang, I think, I don't know, do I want to do that? Because that's the week that, you know, we have this going on and I I don't know if I want to do that. So, and I think they're not, the ego trip isn't there for women. It's not like, oh, I get to be on the podcast with Brian. That's going to be awesome. Um, Even though it it, it certainly is, but it's, it's just, it's not what, what women are really looking for. You mentioned confidence and there's research to back up what you're suggesting when people are applying for jobs women tend to undervalue themselves and men tend to overvalue themselves. And it's, it's just there in, in the data and the research. Um, I, a lot of times when I've worked with women teams, I'll actually talk about having arrogance. Um, I talk about with men teams as well. I think if you have humility and preparation, then you earn the right to actually have an inner arrogance, a swagger, a belief in yourself that's unshakable. Um, is, are those things that you ever talk about with your teams when you're coaching them? Absolutely. I love swagger. That, that is like my new favorite word because confidence is something that everybody 
you know, you have to build that up yourself. You, you can get get that from other things, but I think failure is one of the things how you learn confidence when you fail and you get back up. But swagger, you talk about Arike Ogumbawali coming to Notre Dame. It started with Skylar Diggins at Notre Dame and she had a swagger. And initially people were like, well, wait a minute now. She's a little boisterous and she's a little boastful and, and arrogant. Boy, that's not a word that women want to hear. We're walking that tightrope of trying to be confident without being arrogant, trying to be humble without being boasting about, tell us about your accomplishments. Well, I, I'm, but I'm a team player. And, you know, we always lead with we, well, my team and my staff and, you know, everybody that helped me along the way. And so I love that. I think that women need to have that, that belief in themselves, that unshakable belief, because it's contagious. The rest of the team really picks up on it. And you're so right. We undervalue ourselves when we are looking to get jobs and men ask for a raise four times as often as women. And when we do ask, we never ask for the right amount. We're always underpaid. That's why we're all still making 81 cents on the dollar. So I, I think to, to build up the confidence of women and start complimenting them on that. So when your daughter starts uh, <laughs> flapping out her shirt and, and worrying about me, 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 because I just scored a goal, I think we're going to have to start applauding that and saying, that's, that's what I want to see. There's certainly a line that you don't want to cross, but I, I think women, we're, we're pretty far away from that line. And you mentioned the line. It's between the lines. So the U.S. women's soccer team, when they were kicking everyone's ass and they're winning 13-0, they're all saying, oh, these women are so arrogant. And I'm like, hell yeah, they're kicking everyone's <laughs> ass. What do, you, what, what do you want them to be? And um, to me, they've been such a great example for yeah. our society because if the men were doing that, and by the way, not if, when the men do that, we don't, we don't label them as such. And it's interesting though, Coach, like I have done presentations and workshops where I talk about arrogance and I will tell you women, when I say it, they have a visceral reaction to the word that men tend to not have. And I, it's a challenge for me as a presenter because I don't want to lose the audience by saying a word. And anyone that's ever worked for somebody who's arrogant all the time knows that that's a pretty awful experience. But my whole thing is you need both. Like you need the humble preparation and the arrogant performance. And that's really what my book is all about. But um, I, I, is there any advice you would give to me as I ever speak to women about that? Because I believe it's actually more important for the women to hear often. And we're, by the way, generalizing, there are some women that aren't yeah, like this, sure. and some men that aren't like this. But generally speaking, it's it's a challenge for me when I present to women because I, I can lose them when I use the word arrogant. Like, yeah, I, can, it, I can see it. I can see yeah. them going. It's a, it's a tough word to handle because I don't think men should be arrogant either. So I, I like swagger. I, I use that word a lot more. I'm just talking about believing in yourself because that's that's kind of a fun word. Like, man, I have a swagger. Like, that's fun. So I, I think they will definitely appreciate that more. But I read an interesting article in the Harvard Business Review because I'm teaching a sports leadership class. And it said that the reason that men get hired more than women is because people value confidence over competence. And so all the skills you need to win the interview is that I, 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 is what I'm going to do for you. And yes, you know, I'm going to bring a championship team and I'm going to recruit great players and all those eyes. Then when they get the job, that's not what it takes to win the job and do the job well and have that skill set because it's kind of a different skill set. So women don't get the job, even though they're more competent because they lack the confidence in the interview. You mentioned family time as well and how perhaps some of the women, you know, 
don't have the same autonomy and freedom to do stuff like media for you upon retiring are you feeling like you are healthier um than you were when you were a coach are you feeling like this time and obviously we're in a pandemic so it's a little bit of a, a loaded question but are, are you noticing any differences for yourself that you're not worrying about every kid that you have on campus that you're not worrying about you know scouting and, and traveling and all of this stuff that you did for a bunch of years are you noticing any differences for yourself Oh, absolutely. Brian, my, first of all, my timing was impeccable to leave during this year of a pandemic, the way the season went. And now with the transfer portal and kids just switching teams at a moment's notice, I have just no stress in my life right now. And it is great waking up every morning and still being in the fight and being connected to it, but not having to worry about those day-to-day -day issues of 18 to 21 year old women and the things that they're going through. And it takes so much energy. So I find that I've got a lot, a lot more energy now. I've had Becky Burley on. She just retired university of Florida women's soccer, obviously Roy Williams, uh, North Carolina men's basketball retiring. Do you think that there's anything that's sort of being triggered by all the things you're talking about, transfer portal, pandemic challenges, that this time is actually attractive for people who have had, look, you, you, the three of you, legendary runs. But is there, do you think there's something about this time in the space? Because I'm seeing it outside of sports where I'm seeing people move locations. They're saying, you know what? I'm, I wanted to live here. That's what I'm living. I'm seeing people change jobs and say, you know what? I always wanted to do this. I'm just going to go do it now. Are you noticing anything in your, in your sector as far as people just maybe taking, I'm going to call them risks, but transitions um, that otherwise maybe they wouldn't have if it wasn't for the pandemic? Yeah, I think the game has changed so much. And when I look at a, a guy like Roy Williams, so successful, and some of the coaches of his age, you look at what basketball and coaching in general was like when they started. It used to be 90% of it was X's and O's. And that was the fun part. You know, you're out diagramming stuff on the napkin, you know, talking to other coaches about what you're going to do at practice and some new drills. And that was that was the fun part of it. And it was most of the job. And now each generation has changed so that each generation, I think, got a little needier and then was more interested in, I need a relationship with my coach, which was always important, but now it's, it's even more so. And now every kid is special, but I think social media is the thing that is really changing what coaching used to be like, you know, everything is out there and kids are, are seeing all this stuff. And, you know, an anonymous person who doesn't even want to use their name can say anything they want about somebody. And, you know, everybody has a phone, which means everybody has a camera. So, you know, people are caught in, in bad situations and there's just, so much more off the court for coaches to worry about. And now this transfer portal and now the NIL is coming out where kids are gonna be paid for whatever um, and able to make some money, which could be a really good thing, but it's also just, it's just so different than when we started coaching and why we got into coaching in the first place. But here's what's fascinating. It's not like you didn't win with all these dynamics. 2018, you win the championship. 2019, you almost win the championship. I mean, you you were really, really successful. These things all existed two, three years ago. What for you changed that this decision made sense for you when it made sense? Well, I, I did a 180 in my coaching career because, you know, everybody starts out like Bobby Knight. You know, this is the way, it's my way or the highway. Get on the bus. I'll tell you where we're going. Don't ask me any questions. You know, so I think we all started out kind of somewhere in that position and have changed to being like, 
what do you guys think? What would you like to do? How did you feel about this? You know, they need input. They need, they need everything. It used to be coaches, the high school coach would say, oh, kid will run through a wall for you. That, that, that doesn't happen anymore. Now they're one of like, well, why in the world would you want me to run through a wall? I'm not, I'm not doing that. Um, and they, they always want to know why. And so getting that buy-in, I think is so important. And when you're building your culture, having that shared vision and, and everything is shared and they, they have a say in all of it. And so I think, you know, I think that that's different, but that to me was, that was fun. Like I, I thought that was better when we had that kind of input, but the parents are so much more involved. I mean, when, when back 20 years ago, I barely knew the parents, they, they'd speak to me at the games or they'd wave from the stands. You never had a call from a parent saying, you know, my daughter's not playing enough or, or whatever. I think, I think the parents are what's really changed most of it and just the drama and it's so much more it used to be recruiting you come do you like the campus do you like the team do you want to play here now it's like you know all the pizzazz and all the roll out the red carpets and what can we do for you and how can we make it better than the next place you're going to go to and I don't know for me it just it just got to be too much I can't let you go without talking about championship culture and talking about you had sustained success over a large period of time. It's, it's just an incredible resume. What were some of the factors that you noticed or observed amongst your teams that, that really, I'm not even thinking about maybe not even national championship teams, just teams that you felt like were championship caliber as far as their teamwork and the cohesion and, and what it takes to be a great team. Cause sometimes you don't win the championship, but you have a championship team. Yeah. Um, so talk about what you've observed and what you've noticed throughout your career. Well, I think the championship culture is something that maybe one to 2% of, of teams achieve. And the difference in the championship culture and what most people are in, which is kind of a comfortable sorority type of culture are three things. I think trust is number one, um, conflict. You, you have to be okay with conflict and having that honesty. So those three things really, it's honesty, trust, and being able to call your teammates out if they're not doing what you think they should be doing. And so to have that relationship where I trust you enough and I'm going to be honest with you, if I didn't trust you, I couldn't be honest with you and tell you you're not doing your job. I'm, I need a lot more. Here's what you're not doing. To have those kind of conversations player to player is what makes a championship culture. When we had our great teams, we had Skylar Diggins and she was going to hold you to a higher level. Um, we had Lindsay Allen, we had Marina Mabry, who would tell Arike Ogunbowale when she wasn't doing her job. And Arike would, would listen. And that's the key. Like, it's great to be able to tell somebody something, honestly, but receiving that kind of information, that's the difference. Because when you have not a championship culture, you're, you're going to be afraid to say that to somebody, or they're not going to listen, or they're not going to take it the right way. But it's that, it's that trust and that honesty that makes such a difference to have those kind of players that are ready to just say, this is what we need to do to win. I want to win. And that's, that's how I'm going to handle the rest of this team. It's interesting. You put conflict in there. I often talk about love being about trust, communication, and respect. Um, if we're in a partnership or relationship, we need to trust each other. We need to be really good at communicating with each other. We need to have respect for each other and, and our needs. As I unpack trust, conflict, and honesty, we, we both are on the trust side. Conflict and honesty, I think, requires great communication. 
So, and I like that conflict because I've always said that confrontation should not be a bad word. If we can't confront each other, then we're not really getting to the truth and we're not really getting to honesty. Um, and so it's, it's cool to see that piece. I'd love for you to riff on respect. How did, how did you see respect play a role, um, or not in those teams and and how they operate? You know, I, I almost think of that as a given, you know, I, I mean, of course that has to be in there, but if you trust somebody, I feel like you're going to respect them too. Uh, I think that that's something though. I think respect that you, you kind of give that to everybody that you meet. You should give that to everybody that you meet. You're going to earn a little more respect after you get to know them a little bit more. And that's when they, they get to the trust piece. So I think respect kind of leads to trust because you don't always trust people automatically. That, that really has to be earned. Respect, I think you should have. Um, but as you're earning the respect and getting to that level of trust, I think they go together. It's interesting. I worked with a high school basketball team um, they actually had a player. I worked with both the boys and girls team, Paul the Sixth in Fairfax, Virginia. So Michaela Vaughn sure. went there for a year. Yeah, uh, just an incredible human being. Um, but got to see her for a year, and then um, their boys basketball coach once said to me, "I said to him, that that, that kid is so disrespectful. He was a sophomore in high school, so he's 15, 16 years old. I'm like, he's so disrespectful. How do you put up with him? And he put up with him all, all the way through." And I go, I don't know how you do it. We were at Fuddruckers eating a cheeseburger. And he turns to me and he goes, Brian, you think a 15 or 16 year old can disrespect me? He's like, they can't disrespect me. When they act like that, they're disrespecting themselves. They're the one that looks like a jackass. I know who I am. Like, you know, I might have to kick him out of the gym, but it's not me. It's him. He's the one that's doing it. So I've always thought about that because over the years there are people that I think are being disrespectful, but then I just go back to the idea of like, Oh, they're actually the ones that look like the jackass. I'm going to be me and I'm going to have to deal with them. Uh, They're going to have to deal with themselves. Yeah. It's all about the reaction, isn't it? You know, I think things, things are going to happen and how you react to it is really the the most important thing. You have a choice how you're going to react to how people speak to you and, and how they treat you. For sure. And one one of the quotes that you talk about a lot is what you will allow is what will continue. Why is that a quote that you're not in your head? And why is that a quote that speaks to your philosophy and and how you show up as a coach? And I'm sure you leverage it in other areas of your life as well. Well, you know, what's funny. I used to sit on the bench and I like look at my assistant coach and go, how many times am I going to have to tell her to stop doing that? And, and then it hit me. Well, she's still in the game, isn't she? So she's not going to learn that lesson until you take her out of the game. And so it, it just kind of hit me like, I'm allowing her to do that. That's why she's continuing to do it. And then I started looking like across the board, like at every little situation and thinking, that's exactly right. If you, you know, if somebody's late, you go, that's ah, okay. You, you know, you're allowing them to, to do that. So I decided that it was up to me to enforce that. And even though you think sometimes I used to think, well, the parents should have taught them this or that. And then I thought, well, maybe they didn't. So I guess it's going to be my job. I had a general manager, an NBA general manager once tell me that he likes to watch coaches for when they take timeouts. And he said, if you watch a coach take a timeout because of X's and O's or because of effort or because of defense or offense or whatever it is, you'll notice what they value most. And he said, so when he's hiring a head coach, he's going to watch, what do they take timeouts for? Because 
that they won't allow that to happen anymore. And for some it's effort for some it's bad shots for some it's defense. It, it could be different things, but you get a sense of what that coach's identity is and what that coach values most. Um, does that, does that resonate with you? That is so true. And I think for me, it was always, you can't control offense. I mean, you can't control the ball going in the basket, but if you give up one more three, you're coming out of the game and letting them know that there's certain things principle wise, you know, not, not boxing out on a free throw, giving up a three, just, you know, the effort of course is always there. So it was always effort and defense for me. You played pro ball as well. Uh, I think for a year and you were a baller. So you, you, you played at the highest levels that you could play at. I once worked with a team, it was a professional sports team and the head coach played at the highest levels that he could play at. And every game day I would go up to him and be like, have fun today, coach. And he'd look at me and he's like, I'm not, this isn't fun. This isn't fun. And this guy had the greatest personality, the most likable dude. Everyone loves this guy, but game day, he was a wreck. He was a mess. And I always was like, it was my goal to try to help him enjoy game day. He, he coached professionally for a decade and to this day, he still would say, no, 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 it wasn't fun. When I played, game day was fun. But as a coach, mm -mm, it wasn't fun. And as I listened to you on podcasts and listened to you be interviewed, time and time again, you would talk about catastrophizing on game day. Um, walk us through why that was a process for you. Uh, as you reflect back on your career, how you think about that. And just give us a glimpse into what you were like on, on game day. I hated game day until the tip. I, I hated the day leading up to it. And that's why I hated those ESPN 9 p.m. starts. They were just brutal for me. I wanted to get up and play at noon every day. Uh, you know, I, I would just sit back and think of everything that could go wrong. And I put so much pressure on myself. What if they do this and we're not ready for it? What if they do that? Um, what are we going to do about this? You know, it, it just was so many things that I kept thinking, what if this goes wrong? Who's going to be ready? How will I, how will I handle this or that? And I mean, we were always ready. We were always prepared, but I still always thought every team has in them that one game where they put it together and they're just absolutely unstoppable. And I thought that was our opponent every single game, you know, and I don't care if they're last place right now in the conference, they're going to have that one game tonight. And if we're not ready, we're, we're going to, we're not going to be able to handle it. So when I looked back on my career, I, I kind of counted them. I coached over a thousand games. So I thought that was a thousand days of my life when I was in a bubble of not talking to anybody and not enjoying life. And that was one of the things I really couldn't wait to do after I retired, um, looking at game day and saying, look at me, <laughs> I'm, out, I'm outside and it's game day and I'm not coaching anymore. So that was, that was probably the, the thing I look forward to the most after retiring. If I was a 25 year old aspiring college basketball coach, what advice would you give to me about catastrophizing on game day? You know, the biggest regret, and probably I would say maybe even the only regret I have about my career is that I didn't celebrate the victories enough. They always talk about everybody's advice was keep an even keel, be steady, don't get too high, don't get too low. But I did not appreciate the victories, especially when they were big victories. And we'd win the conference. And I'd say, yeah, 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 we got the conference tournament coming up. Don't, don't relax. And then we'd win the conference tournament. And I would say, yeah, yeah now this is the NCAA tournament. 
And then we'd, we'd get to the final four, but we would lose. So it's like, well, are you going to celebrate? We lost. And so I, I really think I missed an opportunity to really celebrate with the team and to enjoy those, those victories. Even every game, every game we won was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were supposed to win or, you know, we won, but we didn't play well. And so I, I wish that I could have enjoyed the victories more. And early in my career, let the losses go. Just let them go. And I, I carried them with me way too long. I worked with an amazing high school basketball coach and I came in after a great year. I, I'm really good at coming into teams after they've had a great year. <laughs> Highly recommend anybody who is in sports, go to the teams that win a lot and they, they will typically continue to win more and then you'll look really good. Um, <laughs> so I remember coming in and to start the season, they had t-shirts that said satisfaction is the enemy of success. And I was, I was an intern. So I was in grad school studying sports psychology. And I was learning all this research about the power of satisfaction and fulfillment and gratitude and how it's linked to happiness and how you can actually perform better if you have a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. And I really wrestled with it. And I was an intern. So I like challenged it, but not really challenged it. And a few years later, I created this little theory that is actually separating satisfaction and complacency. And can we make a distinction between satisfaction and complacency? Because to me, if we're complacent, that's going to lead us to fail. And that's what's going to fight success. But if we feel satisfied, I actually think it will fight failure and it will actually breed success. And I think too often we blend those two words and we think they're the same thing. But I know like this is a very satisfying experience chatting with you. I'm going to want to do more of these as a result of feeling fulfillment and satisfaction from it. If I'm not satisfied, I'm going to become complacent. And so for me, when I feel a sense of satisfaction, it actually creates more success. Would, would you, would that make sense to you? Like thinking about it as satisfaction compared to complacency, or am I just going nuts in my own distinctions? You know, I think people do blend them a little bit too much. It's sort of like getting a C, you know, you were satisfactory, you were, you were average. And I think whenever we're satisfied, like, how do you move forward? How do you get better if you're satisfied with where you are? And I know there were games when I was like, yeah, you know what? I thought, I thought we did a, a pretty good job. I probably wouldn't use the word satisfied. I, I would say I was, I was happy with that game, but there's always a but at the end, but here's what we have to continue to do because you have to keep moving forward. Even when you win, you got to look in the mirror. You got to look at what you did the whole season, evaluate everything. Here's what we did. We did it well, but we can't stay there. We, we have to, we have to keep moving forward, even if it's with baby steps. And so I, I guess I don't like the word satisfactory. Yeah. Uh, you're not the first podcast guest that we're going to have to debate <laughs> words. As I hear you chuckle and I hear you laugh, one of the things that I think is really cool is that you are intense. You are, you took your job seriously. You were competitive, but you also have a big smile. You laugh a lot. Um, is there this blend? Is there a part of you that maybe if people just watched you on game day and in between the lines that they wouldn't necessarily know about you, that maybe your players got to see a different side of you? Would you show them your laughter, your sense of humor, um, your, your ability to not take everything so seriously? Was that something that you let people into? Oh, yes. But you have to get to know me. And I think it definitely with my team. I know people watch me from afar, even the media people. Uh, they only saw me at practice and they thought I, and I, I am intense and I, and I was definitely intense, but I have a great sense of humor and I do love to laugh. And that, uh, that is something that I think my team could really appreciate. Teaching. 
So you mentioned teaching a class. What's different about teaching compared to coaching? Well, you don't have the wins and losses, which is nice. <laughs> you don't have the stress. I really enjoy game day now. <laughs> I enjoy class day. Uh, it's just about imparting stuff that I would have taught my team. All of the same things. My class is called Sports Leadership, How Leaders Help Teams Flourish. So it's a lot about teamwork and how that, that goes. We talk a lot about culture and a championship culture. You know, we watch a lot of videos. We have guest speakers. Um, but the, the main part is just telling them, you know, how to kind of teach them how to lead, uh, what they can learn about being a good teammate. Um, it, it's really, I love it. I love it because I get to talk about all the things I've been doing for the past 40 years. And it's in just a fun environment. So this is my last question. Sometimes when I say it's my last question, I'm lying and it, it tends to be another one. I promise I, it's my intention is that it's my last question. That's the honest truth. Legacy. So you finish winning 936 games, 40 years, look, a lot of winning, a, a lot of winning accolades, all that good stuff. How important is legacy to you? And I think about 936, I'm like, oh, you couldn't get to a thousand. Like, come on, stretch this out. It wouldn't, take you, it wouldn't take you that long. Like, we're not talking about that many years here and you're still young enough. You could certainly be coaching uh, for, for another five years and easily get to a thousand wins. Does legacy, how do you think about legacy? Is it something that you think about often? Is it something you care about? I do. I care about my legacy, but it's not in terms of numbers. It's not in terms of wins and losses. It's about the impact I had on these young women's lives and helping them grow and helping them through kind of a tough time in a woman's life is that 18 to 22 year olds and really seeing how they come out at the other end and looking at them now. Uh, my favorite part of coaching was seeing that moment when they hit their potential. You know, they just had that one game and that one moment where everything we thought they could be, they've managed to reach that potential. And they do get that, that feeling of pride and they walk a little taller and they, you can see the confidence growing in them. And I just, I love those moments when we can really celebrate what they have become and then they can see themselves as a success. That's a beautiful place for us to stop. Before you go, I, I know I see your book in the background. People won't see this video. Talk about the book. I know that you talked about the negatives of social media, but you are on Twitter. Um, and so <laughs> at Muffet McGraw, they, people can follow you there. And then if they want to learn more about anything that you want to promote, it might be a nonprofit that you're involved in, uh, a book. I also want to give Amber Selking a shout out. Thank you to Amber for, for connecting the two of us. Um, but uh, just use this as a megaphone to promote anything that you want to promote. Well, the book is for women and the title came from the fact expect more is something that women don't do. We never expect more. We certainly never demand more. We take what we're given and we make the best of it. We are taught to go along, to get along, to be a good teammate, to not make waves. And that is not what I wanna see the future generation of women doing. So it's a book about how to stand up, use your voice, something I encourage my players to do. And just a couple of little things and some fun stories that we we had along the way, but I think it's a great book for women. So for your daughters, uh, for your wives, and it's a great book for men to read, to see how you have to deal with women. Cause some men don't understand that we're different and you have to deal with us a little differently. I'm learning every day about that, but uh, <laughs> coaches at Twitter 
on Twitter at Muffet McGraw. I am on Twitter at Brian Levinson. And then LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson as well. You can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Coach, thank you so much. I can't wait to see what you continue to do. Um, and I appreciate all that you do for our society, for our girls, for our women. And I'm just grateful that I got to connect with you. And maybe one day we'll get to connect in person. I, I have it on my list to try to get to South Bend um, for at least a sporting event. When you grow up watching Rudy and you walk down the aisle to your wedding, to the Rudy soundtrack, it just seems like that would be a good place for me to, to go watch a game or two. So thank you for, for everything. And thanks for the time today. Thanks, Brian. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. It's all about your core values and the things that you really value. And for me, honesty was always number one, accountability, integrity, commitment to excellence, and kind of role modeling, you know, the behavior that you want to teach in other people. And so I think that when you see something wrong and you speak out, you're going to get a lot of negative people coming back at you. But if you believe that it's right, it's kind of your duty to step up.